Uh, if you haven't already, turn to Psalm 90. And uh, I have to explain this sermon before I preach it, so I want to give you a little background. Every sermon I preach, I prepare for a particular people in a particular place. So I prepared today's sermon for my home church, Grace Church in Maryland, a church that's about the size of this one, about the same age, actually. I wrote it as a New Year's Day gift for them. 2022 had been a very hard year for us. We lost four of our members to death. Early in the year, Mike died after a long battle with Parkinson's disease. I'd known Mike for 30 years. In the summer, Kathy died from a horrible disease called Lewy body dementia. In September, Brian, in his mid-40s, a sweet and godly man, devoted to his wife and three teenage kids, died instantly falling from a scaffold at work. And then, on October 15, my closest friend and colleague, our lead pastor, Larry Malament, died suddenly of a heart attack. It was a shock to us. He was a healthy man with no history of heart disease. So as a church, we're in a season of grief and mourning. If you ever think about how our society thinks about death and approaches death, we're, we're rather odd. We do all we can to avoid death personally, even to avoid thinking about our death personally, while at the same time, we are obsessed with the news media telling us about the death of people we never knew, or we watch it in the comfort of our couches on a movie screen, knowing that it's not really real. What we don't do is think about what death means. And if we do get a glimpse of what death means to our life, we're never sure how to respond. So this psalm, Psalm 90, does that for us. It teaches us how to think and how to pray and even how to find joy in the face of our short lives, which will inevitably end in our death. So please read along with me, Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. These are God's words to us. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you would form the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you 
our God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Pray with me. Lord, there are words in this psalm that are hard words, and yet you gave them to us as your words for us. And so we pray, we pray with Moses, give us a heart of wisdom and help us to understand our lives as you view them so that we might walk through this life not only aware of its brevity, but in joy and gladness. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to give you a broad outline of what's here, and then we can look at the details of the psalm. It's unique in that it is a psalm of Moses, the only one that we have from Moses. So we have to wonder, what was it in his life that prompted him to write such verses. 
Was it being stuck in, with Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, watching God's people who had experienced signs and wonders and in Egypt and deliverance through the Red Sea, only to quickly fall into complaining, accusing God of harming them, longing for the savory food of Egypt and giving themselves over to idolatry. For 40 years, Moses watched a generation of his people die in the wilderness because they'd been unfaithful to the God who had delivered them. Could have been that. Or was it before that? Did he write it in Midian, a prince of Egypt, who would have identified with Egypt's slave people because they were his people. And so he was forced into exile, though he longed to see his people freed from the slave driver's lash. Longed to see them freed as he watched their lives cut short through injustice and oppression. Was that it? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know the context. But Moses did have, and you may have, plenty of opportunities in his long life to pray this way. The psalm is a lament over the condition of sinful human beings living in this age on the earth. It applies just as much to our day as it did to Moses. The fruit of his lament is prayer. In fact, the entire psalm is a prayer. The first 11 verses pray by confessing truth to God about the world and our experience in the world. The last six verses are petitions in light of what Moses confesses in the first part. So you could call this how to pray in a bad day. It's for people who look back on a painful past, a past they are responsible for and wonder about the future. We cannot learn the wisdom this psalm offers us unless we face the reality of death and the reality of why something that seems so evil and brings us such grief is allowed by a good and merciful God. So let's now enter into the world of this psalm. The psalm begins verses 1 and 2 and tells us first that God is with us. The psalm opens in great comfort. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you would form the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God so it opens addressing our Lord our master and ruler which is what that word Lord in verse 1 means this Lord is our dwelling place we live in Him, in His presence, under His authority. In this world, we are strangers and exiles. In God, we are at home. If we live before Him, under His favor, 
it's enough for us during our sojourn here on this earth. This God has been with us always because he exists before time began, from everlasting to everlasting. This Lord and God has always been present to bless us. There's never been a time when God's people could not find their refuge and home in Him. In some generations, His works flourish. In others, we experience decline through our toleration of sin or our endurance of persecution. Through every generation there has been, He has been there. In every generation, He says, come to Me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you a home. You can make your home in Me. So verse 1 and 2 prepare us for verses 3 through 10. Without verses 1 and 2, you'll be driven to despair in the verses that follow. So the second part of the psalm, verses 3 through 10, tell us that our lives are short because of God's anger. Our lives are short because of God's anger. In verse 3, we face the reality of death. We die, regardless of the immediate cause, we die at His command. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. So right away we find out that death is God's time marker for our lives. We come into this world at His command and we leave it at His command. Both our birth and our death are no mistake. But they are perplexing when we consider the circumstances, both of how we came into this world and how we'll leave it. We think our lives are of great significance I know I think mine's really important for me. We do everything we can to preserve our lives and ensure our security in them and increase our happiness in life. But in comparison to God's time horizon, our sojourn here on earth is not as significant as you may think. Verse 4, a thousand years thousand years in God's sight, longer than the lifespan of the oldest man recorded in the Bible. That thousand years in God's sight is like our memory of yesterday. It fills the length of time a security guard spends watching over a city for three or four hours at night. If God's day is a thousand years, our 70 years compare to his lunch break. In the light of God's time horizon, verses 5 and 6 show us how fleeting our lives truly are. Death inundates us like 
a flood. I know you can relate to that here in Southern California. Wipes away all that finds itself in the path of its torrents. We're like desert grasses, looking lush in our youth, growing so swiftly, yet the scorching heat of the day dries the life out of us by nightfall. So I want to stop here for a minute. I want you to think about how you think about your time horizon. How do you think about your life? What's on your time horizon? Graduation? Birth of a child? Next promotion? Next vacation? Better job? A wedding? Retirement? Or maybe it's just getting through next week of work or getting over this illness and through this medical treatment. In a materially prosperous country like ours, some people seem to live charmed lives in which they succeed at everything. The past and the future are only bright. They attend the best schools, move from one fulfilling job to the next with pay raises along the way. They marry the beautiful spouse and their children are all talented and good-looking. See, if you see your life in the light of your past accomplishments or your next success, you are setting yourself up for disaster. But when you widen your view, you realize that this life is so very short. Our best accomplishments are temporary. Our pleasures are so fleeting. All of us die. And the day of our death, controlled by God, is not even known to us. But it's worse than that. Verse 7 tells us why we die. We die because of God's wrath for our sins. Look at verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. We live in this world that's so frightened by death. But there is something worse than death. There is the God who must, that's right, He must bring our lives to an end as a consequence of our rebellion against His just and righteous character. In verse 9, Moses tells us that what should dismay us is God's wrath for our sins. For each and every sin, even for those sins we think nobody can. Nobody knows. Nobody could see. None of our sins are hidden from His sight. Verse 9, for all our days, I'm sorry, all our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So in light of that, our days pass away under your wrath. Now, now I'm looking at y'all. This is really depressing stuff. 
Let's just, let's just admit that, okay? Right? Let's be real, some of us like to say. And at this point, because I know a lot of you, you're thinking, okay, John, time to make the turn. Surely our sins are forgiven in Christ and we no longer have to fear the wrath of God. And that's true. And we will get there. But that's not the point of verses 7 through 9. The direct cause of our death is more than that we were born from the seed of our father Adam and therefore born inheriting his sin. We also die because of our own sins, our particular sins, even our hidden sins. So Moses' concern is that we see beyond the fact of death to the cause of our death, the wrath of God for our sins. You want to get an idea how bad your sins are? We need no more explanation than that they require death. And we know how bad death is. When I die, it will be because I am a sinner. Verse 10 sums up the psalm so far. Even if we live long enough, our lives are short. And in our lives, we experience toil and trouble. And all this is because we live in an age of mankind's rebellion against God and His holy response of wrath to sin. So this... Psalm so far, it's brought us down. It's brought us down deep. And then there comes a transition. So verses 11 and 12, they're like the hinges on a door. So we move from one room in verses 1 through 10 to another room in verses 13 through 17. Look at verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Few consider the reality of death and the reasons behind it. So the question implies a calling. The question says, be one of those people. Consider the Lord in the power of His anger. Consider the One who created us to bless us, but must judge us for rejecting Him and His blessing. Consider all the toil and trouble and finally death that our rebellion has brought upon us. Consider those things. Think about them. Because once you embrace these realities, you're ready to pray the next transitional verse. Verse 12. Now we begin to pray. We've been thinking. We've been confessing what's true. And now we pray. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us. So it's a learning process. Okay, you don't get this right away. You go through life and you begin to see that things can go really bad. 
and you say, God, teach me. What does this mean? Help me to understand. If your life has encountered little toil and trouble, and you've not had to confront the reality of death, this prayer may seem unnecessary. I urge you to pray this prayer. You might be here, a teenager, and you've had a come from a great family and have had a good and happy life. Learn to pray this prayer. We need God to teach us in light of his anger and death. So we got to learn to number our days. God must teach us to number our days. What does Moses mean here? I would assume, I, I think you would think, he's not talking about adding them up. I've lived, if I calculated correctly, and that should be examined, uh, 24,413 days as of today. I didn't calculate for leap years, so we probably ought to add a few weeks. <laughs> That's no help when it comes to gaining wisdom. <laughs> So what is Moses saying? Teach us to number our days. Teach us to count our days. Well, we number the day of our birth, and we number the day of our death. And we realize that the span of our life is minuscule when compared to the ages of mankind and the span of God's existence. Then we consider that the last day of our life the day of our death is known only to God. He alone determines when it will happen. Then we number the toil and the trouble of our days and our fear of our own death and our grief over the death of others. This is what I think verse 11 means about numbering our days. You count them with the with the events that God wants you to count from your birth to your dying day. We're to see our lives in the context of our created nature. We're to see our lives in the context of the span of God's time. See our lives in the light of the fallen nature of our world and our own sinful state and God's judgment which he executes with every death. So if we ponder this as we are right now, it, it shapes our thinking by considering this. And we begin to gain wisdom in our inner being. We get a heart of wisdom. You start to look at life differently. And that prepares us to pray. To pray the kinds of prayers that we know God wants to answer because these prayers are prayers He gives us as we pray for wisdom in the verses that follow. So then the last section of the psalm, third section, if you don't count the transitional part as a section, number three, we must pray for God's favor during our short sojourn on the earth. We must pray for God's favor, verses 13 through 17. Now, before we get through, get to each 
petition. I want you to notice something in verse 13. It says, return, O Lord. But you'll notice that the name Lord there is in all capital letters. The psalm opened as a prayer to the Lord, but it doesn't have the all capital letters in the first word of the psalm. Do you see that? The Lord of verse 1 uses the Hebrew word for a master or a ruler. Verse 2 addresses him as God, identifying his creative and controlling power. But when the Bible in the Old Testament notes Lord in all capital letters, it's referring to God's personal name, only to be used by his people. Not everyone can call him Lord. He allows those who belong to him to address him as their personal God who has bestowed the favor of relationship upon them. So we are called to pray to the God who has bestowed his committed love on us. See that? It's very different than the Lord and God that we're recognizing in verses 1 through 12. Now we're coming to a personal God who draws us into personal knowledge of Him. So now we can pray these prayers. First, in verse 13, we pray for mercy. Return, O Lord, how long? And if you're in a bad day, it just seems endless. Have pity on your servants. When life is characterized by toil and trouble and death, we groan under its pain and the anxiety and depression it produces in us. And so we ask God to show us mercy in our misery, to put an end to our long experience of difficulty. He says, come to me, bring your groaning, bring your pain. I have come for you. Second in verse 14, verse 14 makes the pity of verse 13 specific. Have pity on your servants, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make your committed, faithful, everlasting love for us satisfy us. In knowing you in this love of yours, may we say, whatever our situation, your love is enough for a good day, even in our darkest day. And if you've lived as long as I have, you've seen some dark days. Even in our darkest day, we can be satisfied in His love, resulting in our rejoicing and being glad. This is possible for all our days. Third, verse 15, we pray for a great reversal of our experience. Look at 15. Make us glad 
for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Yes, we've been afflicted. We have suffered. Yes, evil has assaulted us. But our affliction taught us to number our days. And so we look up and we see your steadfast love. Let our days now be characterized by joy and gladness in that love. But we keep praying. Fourth, He gives us eyes to see through the fallen nature of our world and the evil that, that, that lies there seeking to deceive us. Look at verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Give us eyes to see how you are already working in the world. And cause our children to see your glorious power as well. There are times I look at situations and I, 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 I know Romans 8.28 just as well as the rest of you. God causes all things to work together for the good. But I think, man, I don't know how you're going to work this one out. It just looks all bad. And the Lord said, no, I want to I make you see I want you to see my work. You will see my power. This evil day is not the last word in your life. Fifth, verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. So, the Lord and God of verse 1 and 2, now that we've known Him in His love, in this personal encounter, we say, Master, Creator, Controller of all things, let Your favor be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let our lives be filled with your favor so that our work in this world, our work to provide for ourselves, to provide for those who are under our care, to serve you in advancing your gospel, to love our neighbors, establish this work. Let it be fruitful. Even if our work entails toil and trouble, let it be productive. Let it endure even to our children's generation. I've been through some, I, you know, you, you're a Christian long enough, you see churches, they, they get, there's there going to be a lot of trouble in churches. And yet, and that has driven me to study church history. Because if you think things are loony today, you can get an education and find out, whoa, this is pretty normal actually. Uh, and yet, what I've seen in looking back is the Lord always transfers His testimony to a people of another generation. You have no idea God's plans 
or those little kids out in the courtyard there. So take good care of them, okay? These prayers give us an expectation that our life is not all sorrow. There is real joy and real delight and real fruitful accomplishment to be had during our short sojourn here on earth. We can be glad in the moment. Things go good. You, you, you tried and it worked. Let's have a party. <laughs> so this is how we find wisdom in a world under judgment, a world filled with toil and trouble, with each life cut short by death. We see God's hand in all of it. We depend upon Him and His covenant promises to keep us through this age. We find satisfaction in Him. We keep working even when our work is toilsome, knowing that God will make us fruitful in His time according to His plans. And we pray that all of this will be transferred to another generation. This psalm gives us Moses' time horizon. But the Bible's insight into time doesn't end there. Jesus, and I promised you I'd get to Him, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who dwelt above time, entered into our time and experienced all the toil and trouble we experience. He did it at His Father's bidding. He came to die. Not for His own sins. He had none. He died for our sins. He didn't defeat sin and death by rising above them but by entering into a sinful world to experience all its toil and trouble and then to experience the judgment of a death he did not deserve. What is your worst sorrow in this life? Jesus Christ understands it. He experienced far worse. He defeated death not by avoiding it, but by rising from the dead to return to His place of eternal life and honor and rule. So we follow Him not only in His life, but we follow Him in His death. That means we too experience all the sorrow and toil and trouble this life brings us as He did. The big difference is we deserve it. He did not. So we work with temporary fruitfulness. We rejoice and are glad in the blessing He gives us. And then we die, just as He did. Though we deserve it, and He did not. And then we rise with Him. We live again. We transcend the painful realities of Psalm 90 to a new life. A life that has no time horizon numbered by death. Let's pray. Father, we pray the prayer of this psalm that You would teach us to number our days the way You 
number our days that we could gain the wisdom that understands the frame of our life and finds joy in you, in the abilities you give us, in the successes, and in the failures. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We ask you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.